0: Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. Pentecost may well be the most misconstrued day on the church calendar. A long legacy of cessationism has drained Pentecost of most of its significance, and it's largely misunderstood in many Western churches today, if not outright ignored. And I'm quoting there from the publicity for a new IVP book in the Fullness of Time series called Pentecost, A Day of Power for All People and uh, it's written by my very special guest on the show, uh, Bishop Emilio Alvarez, who offers us a rich biblical and theological introduction to the day of Pentecost and sets it in its liturgical context, not only in the Protestant tradition, but also in Catholic Orthodox and Pentecostal expressions. Now Emilio Alvarez is a very interesting character he is the presiding bishop of the union of charismatic orthodox churches a communion that embraces the one holy catholic apostolic tradition he's also associate provost for lifelong learning at asbury theological seminary in wilmore kentucky in the states and he joins me now from uh, from there i presume (laughs) bishop emilio or archbishop emilio welcome to the show
1: Thank you so very much, Brian. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm actually here uh, in my home or part of my house, just having a chillax day.
0: A chillax day? Are bishops bishops ever permitted to have chillax days?
1: Not, Not really, so I'm cheating. (laughs)
0: Well, I've got a couple of opening questions before we get into this fascinatingly rich discussion of Pentecost that you've given us, um, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Asbury. Now, is this the same Asbury in Wilmore, Kentucky, that is the place of the current or recent revival?
1: Well, yes and no,
0: Brent. A lot of
1: people, when they hear Asbury, they think Asbury Theological Seminary. They forget that there's an Asbury University right across the street. And the revival began at Asbury University, but it did actually trickle into Asbury Theological Seminary. And so Asbury University and Asbury Theological Seminary were working together during that um, humongous revival. So I think one Sunday it was like, um, 20,000 people on a Sunday, uh, between both places. Wow. Uh, I mean, in Wilmore that only has two street lights and a subway. So <laughs> isn't
0: yeah. it often the way the revival breaks out? God uses places like Wilmore, Kentucky and other places to right. bring, bring his, his spirit. Um, and can I ask you also about the, uh, the union of charismatic Orthodox churches? Now, what are they? So the Union of Charismatic Orthodox
1: Churches is a federation, a union, a a getting together of churches, men and women, senior leaders from all over the country, uh, some now uh, internationally. And we did not break away from any denomination So we're not a breakaway, so we really resist that language of denomination, of denominational language. There was no breaking away. It was men and women who were, for the most part, independent, non-denominational, charismatic Pentecostals who were recovering the great tradition or or the elements of the great tradition who were on their own journey. And the funny thing is, Brent, we didn't know we existed to one another. And so we thought we were by ourselves, and slowly but surely, we began to meet each other and discovered that we all shared similarities in our journey, the passion and the interest for the recovery of sacraments, uh, the love for the Eucharist, the belief in real presence, on and on, appreciation and love for the fathers and the mothers of the church. And so out of that, we met together for a number of years as brothers and sisters and um eventually developed a organization called the Union of Charismatic Orthodox Churches uh, to serve the purpose of charismatic and Pentecostals that are recovering the Greek tradition.
0: Yeah, fascinating. Your own background is Pentecostal. You write about it, it in the book. Yeah. Yes, correct. Yeah. Yes. Very rich yes. traditions. Thank now you. let's come on and talk about uh, appropriately talking about Pentecost, um, which is fitting yes. it, it, given the fact you've just had a recent revival where you are. Why would the promise of power in Pentecost have appealed to a first century Jewish person, do you think?
1: Well, you know, for, for to a, a first century Jewish person, that promise of power, I think that, that verbiage when you heard it in their own native tongue um, would have been a promise of being able to be self-sufficient, being able to get out of the political um, and the social kind of depravity that they were living in, right? To to have that promise of power was to be able, even in um, religious terms, to get up from under the the foot of Rome, right? And so when Jesus speaks to them about power, that would have been really, really appealing to a people who most likely felt that, like they didn't have any power. Uh, So I think that's why it would have been very appealing to a first century Jewish person.
0: Why is Pentecost, I note this in in your words, uh, inescapably about power? You write Pentecost is inescapably about power. Now, what do you mean by that?
1: So what I mean by that is that at the at the grassroots level, when we think about Pentecost, and even in my own Pentecostal tradition, we kind of talk about power in this emotional, experiential way uh, whether it's tied to glossolalia, whether it's tied to miracles and signs and wonders. But the reality is that it's all of that for us who are in that stream, but it's more. It really is power that translates itself to linguistics, power that translates itself to ecumenism and unity, power which translates itself to love of other. Power, which translates itself to love of God, right? And so, all of these dynamics that are at work at Pentecost, when you look at kind of the the the, the, the common denominator, the thing that brings them together, it is that power concept—the powerful love, the powerful uh, unity, the powerful ecumenism, the powerful miracle,
0: signs and wonders. How does Pentecost, because you, your book explores, well, it explores the, the rich traditions, the Jewish traditions behind Pentecost, the, uh, and then you get into the, the, the Orthodox traditions and the Pentecostal celebrations of Pentecost. I found it all absolutely fascinating. I'm going to ask you about all the liturgical colors in a minute because I love liturgical colors, I have to confess. Yeah. But I wonder first, how does Pentecost derive from the Old Testament?
1: So Pentecost derives from the Old Testament in that there's various authors that have connected it with Mount Sinai, right? And that whole experience of God showing up at the mountain, um, empowering the people of God to be his people, right? They've got a covenant there. And this is exactly what happens in Acts chapter two. The spirit comes and then now the church is empowered. There's uh, a, a spiritual covenant now, right? Jesus says, you know, you shall be my witnesses, but don't go anywhere, Don't go anywhere. You first have to be, right, empowered, filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you can go be my witnesses, that Greek word martyr, martudeo, right, where we get martyred them from. And so when we look at the Old Testament, you have um, the typology of Mount Sinai. And then you also have a couple of other typologies that are connected with the feasts, um, and the Jewish rituals, um, so on and so. On. But one of the feasts, of course, or one of the one of the strongest typologies that I try to make via the feasts is this whole concept of pilgrimage, which which a lot of people do not connect with Pentecost. Yet um, that whole concept of pilgrimage to be a sort or sojourner that's so vital to understanding Pentecost because you are actually supposed to count down the fifty days to the day of Pentecost, and not just wait for Pentecost, but you're actually supposed to count down those 50 days. Yeah,
0: yeah. when was Pentecost celebrated in the Jewish liturgical year?
1: So in the Jewish liturgical year, Pentecost was celebrated, and I think that's why we've got the 50 uh, uh, days um, that we come from. If I remember correctly, it was one of the harvest feasts, that were celebrated um and you had a countdown towards that and um there was other liturgical kind of um connotations that were wrapped around that but it was really that harvest feast that you waited for um and that you counted down those 50 days actually there's even more um there's even more writing and even more scholarship now that I have discovered since writing the book oh really um, yeah, I just kept on, you know, kind of just researching, and there's even more. Um, there's even more information and scholarship that has been now, not now, but I recently discovered to look at the process of that harvest feast in those fifty days, um, which is so enriching in terms of what they would do for every single day. And one of the things, and one of the things that, as you know, you read the book, is that at Pentecost. Um, they would read the book of Esther. Yeah. Right. They, I mean, it was. I, I mean, just really incredible. Um, I, 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 was it Esther or Ruth? I, one of those two. I, I I wrote the book, and
0: I don't even remember. Um, <laughs> can't help you. I can't remember either. I'm afraid.
1: Right. Right. But they would they would read the book of Esther. I think it was either Esther or Ruth, and that's what they would be doing. And one 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 thinks about in the upper room. Right. We're still Old Testament. But New Testament, Old Testament Jewish uh, 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 men and women in the New Testament. But one thinks about whether or not they were praying and reading the book of Esther or Ruth for those 50 days, mm. you know, mm. because that's what um, that's what was done in the Old Testament within that Pentecost framework.
0: Yes. Seven times seven and a 50th day. Yes. All connection mm-hmm. with Jubilee, too. Um Jubilee, really, yes. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I think you're right about that. How did the church fathers think about and write about the symbolism of the 50 days? Because that gets very interesting. Noah's Ark comes in there somewhere too, doesn't it, I think?
1: Yeah, if I remember correctly, Noah's Ark comes into that. Um, I know that um, if, if if my mind is correct, uh, Chrysostom is speaking about it. Um, Gregory speaks about it. Um, There's a lot of symbolism and a lot of typology that goes on with the fathers, even with the tongues of uh, fire, but also um, not only the tongues of fire, the the fathers were big on the kind of inverse um, reaction. So a lot of the fathers didn't not only speak about the people who were speaking in tongues, it wasn't that that was the miracle. Uh, A lot of the fathers actually concentrated on the hearing, on those who heard those speak in other languages. That was even more the miracle.
0: Yes, so we're going to ask you what what the significance of the tongues is, because you bring out the rich tradition behind that, too, in Acts chapter 2, the tongues. What do the tongues signify?
1: So, you know, glossolalia has been a... heated, heated, um, heated subject since the beginning. And of course, as you know, as I write in the book, even even the fathers of the church were a bit, you know, tentative when, uh, when it came to speaking in tongues. It was, I believe, Irenaeus, um, you know, speaking of, you know, Cornelius's household, who um, Irenaeus... You know, he changes kind of the the script. He doesn't add speaking in tongues. He adds prophecy um, to what happens in Cornelius's household, and it's not. It's it's actually speaking in tongues, but it just goes back to show us that there was you know the fathers were tentative because the Christian uh, the Christian you know uh, religion at that point was so you know it was being attacked, and the last thing that they needed was a whole bunch of people speaking in languages that nobody understood. Okay, so. With that being said, um, the richness of speaking in tongues is that you speak in tongues and then you speak in other tongues. And there is in Acts chapter two, it's not speaking in tongues. They spoke in other tongues. Tongues, And so for our Pentecostal charismatic evangelical brothers and sisters, and for our more liturgical brothers and sisters who are always looking at us wondering what is going on, one is to edify your soul, your spirit, of course, your soul, you're speaking to God as Paul um, correctly identifies. And the other is so that we can speak to one another so that someone can hear God proclaimed in their tongue. Going further, this has um, social-political, social-religious dynamics, um, Pentecost does, because it is the reversal of Babel. Yes, of course. Genesis chapter 11, mm. right? Mm. Where they all speak in one language, right? They all hear themselves in one voice. They all speak one language. Well, in at Pentecost, the languages are diverse. Um, and so... That that means that now I can I can hear my brother and my sister I can communicate. This is important because then that means that as believers as Pentecostal believers and I do believe that everyone should be Pentecostal, not denominationally. Right? I say that and they they start freaking out, Brent. Right? Not denominationally. I think that everyone should be Pentecostal in that. You have the empowerment of the Spirit, Acts chapter 2, and that empowerment of the Spirit should allow you to be bilingual or trilingual in your language of faith, which means that I can speak my own primary language of Pentecostal, but I also can speak the language of Roman Catholic. I can speak the language of Anglican. I can speak the language because that is what the Spirit does, evident as evidenced by Pentecost.
0: Mm. I think you've probably already covered this, but um, how is Pentecost linked to Exodus and Mount Sinai because you trace that very rich theological theme in your book too?
1: Yes, yes. I think that the major the major thing for me to identify with Pentecost again is that Mount Sinai experience where they had just come out of uh, Egypt, right and there's this major Exodus, Um, they themselves are on their way. They have come out, they are on their way, but they're gonna continue to be on their way. So there's this pilgrimage, there's this sojourner, right? But before they do that, they come to this place. Now, this is so interesting because he says, and you shall be my witnesses. Jesus says, you shall be my witnesses, right? Um, And then you're gonna go to Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth, you know the scripture, but you're gonna be my martyrs. And what's so interesting is that there's a there's a direct connection between those who were at Mount Sinai who all died off. They all died off in the wilderness. It's as if they were the original (laughs) martyrs. But before they went on to, you know, to the promised land and before they got into, you know, all this kind of craziness and they had to be there for uh, all of those years. The reality is that they had to stop at Mount Sinai and it was there at Mount Sinai. Where they had to see and experience God, and and this is and this is the truth. This is the truth. They 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 ate, um, and they saw God. That's what it says on Mount Sinai. They ate and they saw God. They experienced Him there, and then they were able to go on their way. And so um, there's this direct correlation between Mount Sinai being the disciples or the apostles' moment in Acts you know, chapter two in the upper room, right? And so you see that there are these parallels that are at play not only with you came out of Egypt. You came out of your own Egypt. The disciples are coming out of Egypt. The, the apostles have come out of their own Egypt. They're on their way somewhere. They've been sent, but before they go, they have to stop somewhere. Same thing with the Israelites. They came out of somewhere in terms of the Exodus. They're on their way somewhere the promised land, but before they get there, they have to stop here and know this God who has covenant with them and empowers them to continue to move
0: forward. Yes, and they have an experience of fire and thunder, don't they? It's some um, yes, it's like yes, Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Can we come on and we've got about ten minutes left of the interview. I think I wanted to because you, the book then goes on to explore these very rich um, liturgical traditions in the Greek Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, Eastern uh, Eastern Orthodox churches, and the Pentecostal church. Now, you talk about standing and kneeling prayers. Tell us about those. I found those fascinating.
1: Yeah, those were actually uh, the standing prayers and the kneeling prayers are actually part of the Orthodox tradition. You have what's called standing prayers and kneeling prayers. And what's interesting is that it is at Pentecost, um, I believe I'm going to get these mixed up and please forgive me because I've been running, 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 running. And but um, at Pentecost, if I'm not mistaken, it is kneeling. It is or it is standing um, at the Pentecost prayers, if I'm not mistaken correctly. Um, And those kinds of standing prayers are really supposed to be the ones, and I'm, I'm I'm making sure that I look it up here, but those standing prayers are the ones that are really supposed to be uh, uplifting, that are really supposed to be the ones that are um, kind of this vertical posture as pilgrims and sojourners, right? So you have this, this vertical posture. And so you see that, uh, for example, um, in the book of Revelations, They're standing. You see that all nations, all tribes, all tongues. Right? It was a common posture. Um, And and whenever, so for example, it says, um, and and whenever uh, you stand praying, if you have anything against your, you know, so Matthew that kind of Matthew chapter eleven verse twenty five. So you you stood up, right, at Pentecost. And it was the standing prayers at Pentecost that was the posture. So that uh, whenever we see the iconography of Pentecost, everyone's always standing. The kneeling prayers was something else. It was was more reverential. It was more uh, downtrodden. It was more um, of a humility. But the standing posture was this posture that um, was... Kind of am so open, right? This this posture of openness, and that's kind of what I talk about in um, in in at Pentecost in the book. Mm,
0: yes. Uh, what are some of the liturgical colors associated with Pentecost? For example, how is the color green used in the Eastern yeah. Orthodox Church at Pentecost? I love that. Yes,
1: yeah, so, you know, there's white. Um, so white Sunday, um, which is representative of that um, revelations. Um, You know, and I saw all nations, all tribes, white robes, um, and which really speaks of baptism. And a lot of people are surprised to find out that um, at Pentecost is when you do most of the baptisms. Um, It's at Pentecost, um, you know, that you can also not most, but you can also do uh, baptisms at Pentecost. Um, Red is for the fire of the spirit and that whole emotive passion behind it. And green, particularly in the Eastern Orthodox, which is my favorite, um, is because it is the, the color of life so you wouldn't think, right? But in the Eastern Orthodox Church, the color for Pentecost is green because it speaks of the earth, it speaks of growth, it speaks of vitality. And surely when the spirit comes, that's what we're supposed to be doing. The spirit doesn't come just so that we can feel and have an emotive experience. It comes so that we can have growth and maturity and vitality. So the the Eastern color is green.
0: You wrote about the Eastern Orthodox tradition. I wonder how it celebrates ecstatic experiences of the Holy Spirit.
1: Yeah, you know that's a very interesting conversation that I continue to have. Um particularly with my Eastern Orthodox friends, particularly with Father Timothy Crameens, who's a, who's a, who's a friend. Um Father Timothy Crameens um wrote a book on the um, charismatic renewal and how it actually um impacted the Eastern Orthodox Church. And most people don't know that the charismatic renewal 1960s, 1970s actually touched Eastern Orthodoxy. And so they were actually, he documents, uh, miracles, signs and wonders, ecstatic manifestations. Whether we see that now in that kind of vivid way, uh, I can't speak to that for sure. I know that one of the things that Pentecostalism, and I've always said this in terms of my own research, one of the things that Pentecostalism has a lot in common with Eastern Orthodoxy or the Orthodox Church is its pneumatological sense. Um, Eastern Orthodoxy is very pneumatological. It is very, very spirit kind of um, filled in its own way. Um, it, its liturgy is spirit-filled, its liturgy is to the Spirit. I mean, it is just, it's a high pneumatology as well as a high Christology. So it does have that in common with Pentecostals. Uh, to say that there are charismatic Eastern Orthodox uh, believers or priests or bishops, I've seen a few. I mean, not as charismatic as, you know, Pentecostals, but I've seen a few.
0: Yeah. St. Simeon, He's yes. an interesting character. He uh, writes f- f- fabulously, or about light, doesn't he? How, how was Saint Simeon in the eleventh century intoxicated by light?
1: <laughs> saint Simeon is my patron saint. Um, I've been doing my research with Father John Bear on Saint Simeon, the New Theologian, and uh, Saint Simeon, light. Saint Simeon is kind of the first theologian to say that light is God, or that light is the spirit, right? Um, he's the first theologian in the 11th century to to really kind of make that characterization. Um, it is so powerful that St. Simeon not only says that that, in, that light intoxicated him, but that that light, once it comes in him, he becomes light and that his hands become light, his face become light, and all of the members of his body come light he not only he he not only does this or or has these kinds of experiences on his own but even at the Eucharist Saint Simeon speaks of seeing the Holy Spirit as light come down at the table and he says the 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 Eucharist that does not have the spirit right that, that you can't feel sense that light you sense that spirit that's not a real Eucharist and so he has a really really high pneumatological experiential. Um, theology of, of of the Holy Spirit.
0: Can I ask you just before we close, uh, what are, what are some of your own experiences of the Holy Spirit? Am I can I ask you something personal like that? Yes, that would be more than fine.
1: You know, um, in in several books, this one and the one before Pentecostal Orthodoxy, um, I do describe um, sensing, seeing, various things. I think one of my own experiences, for example. Um, And it's a it's a weird one. You know, I was an itinerant preacher for a while. So I've been in ministry now 25 years, um, mostly pastoring, but I've done some itinerant work. And I I can remember, Brent, vividly having to go to preach to a church. And um, I, you know, God really wanted to to do something in a special kind of way. And I can remember going into a church and getting immediate knee pain for no apparent reason, or some type of pain in my body, for no apparent reason. And I'm like, you know, I'm praying and saying, God, take this away. Um, Come to find out, after like the first, second or the third time, I think it was, you know, I started believing that maybe God was telling me something, and he was just showing me this, and maybe this is an experience that I was having. And so I would just start asking people, does anybody have like knee pain or And sure enough, somebody would say, hey, I just I got operated or I need an operation or my back or, you know, those are generalities. But why would I be experiencing those things? I've also experienced God deeply, deeply, deeply in prayer as St. Simeon has. I've been in prayer sometimes, Brent, and this has happened maybe most recently, maybe two, three years ago where I'm in prayer and I really sense a light and a warmth. And I mean, everything is dark and I do sense a light and a warmth. And I am so, I don't know, fearful is not the right word, but reverential to what I'm sensing that I don't even look up. But you know how you can feel the sun when it hits you? That's exactly what I felt in prayer. And so I've had, you know, similar things happen to me in my life, both in my own spirituality as well in my ministry.
0: Wonderful. Thank you very much, Bishop Emilio Alvarez, and his new book from IVP in their Fullness of Time series is called Pentecost, A Day of Power for All People. Thank you, Bishop Emilio, for the fascinating discussion, and thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Emilio, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Brian. Great to be with you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God's Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.